0: Is Ohio a sign of good things to come for Democrats? This is Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we're available everywhere on the Blue Amp YouTube channel. The Wikipedia entry for Ted Strickland reads, quote, as of 2023, he is the last Democrat to serve as governor of Ohio, quote. But when Ohio voters soundly rejected a cynical Republican ballot, in ballot initiative a few weeks ago, it made us wonder, is that about to change? What happened to this one-time bellwether state and have Democrats begun to figure out how to win it back in other states like it. So we thought we'd ask him. Ted Strickland served in the U.S. House of Representatives for 12 years and is the governor of Ohio from 2007 to 2011. He's also been president of the Center for American Progress Action Fund, and he's an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church. Governor Strickland, we're really honored to have you on Beyond Politics.
1: Paul, I'm happy to be with you and Matt today, and I look forward to our discussion.
0: We'll get right to it. We're a few weeks past the issue one vote. And as our viewers and listeners who are very educated and sophisticated probably know, the Republican legislature put this referendum on the ballot in order to try to stop another referendum coming up this November that would protect abortion rights in Ohio. And voters turned out in record numbers they rejected the Republican maneuver by 14 points. And we're curious, were you surprised? Not
1: really. I was surprised at the margin, but it seemed obvious to me throughout the summer months that the Republicans had overreached. Ohio, I've always viewed Ohio as a slightly right of center state, certainly not a a, a state that embraces either extreme right or left. And I think what the Republicans did with this initiative was to show how corrupt they are when it comes to an understanding and an appreciation of Ohio and Ohioans and Ohio law. And for example, a few months ago, literally a few months ago, the Ohio General Assembly passed a law signed by the governor that prohibited August elections, except when there was a fiscal emergency in a school system, for example. And then they came up with this cockamamie idea, wait a minute, if we put this initiative to change the, the level of it, that it takes, the percentage of the vote it takes to pass a constitutional amendment, then we can slip it in an August election when few people will know about it and few people are likely to vote. And we can, quite frankly, grab power and hold on to power in Ohio for generations to come because it would effectively strip away from the citizens of our state the ability to go to the ballot and pass a constitutional amendment, thereby bypassing a legislature and a governor that is so totally out of touch with the average Ohioan. And so they put this on the ballot, and it it caused a firestorm. People were paying attention. They thought they wouldn't be, but they were paying attention in Ohio. And a coalition developed of environmentalists and labor leaders and faith leaders. And it was just an overwhelming coming together of various interest groups in Ohio to push back against that August initiative. And it went down big time. And I think what that says is going forward that come November, Ohioans will pass a constitutional amendment that will enshrine within our state's constitution the right of a woman to control her own body. And if it can happen in Ohio, Paul, it can happen anywhere.
2: That's what we're hoping. Yeah, and just to set the context here, let's take a step. Back in, it's almost 20 years ago, in 2004, Thomas Frank wrote an influential book that I know you're both familiar with because it was smack dab in the middle of your political careers. And it was called, What's the Matter with Canada? And he argued that Democrats had lost the heartland states by abandoning working and middle-class interests and moving left on social and cultural issues, while Republicans were able to make hay by waging cultural battles, where in Frank's telling, victory was nearly impossible. You're never gonna win on these issues, school, prayer, gay, marriage, abortion, things have changed, right? Actually, they've not only not won on those issues, They've now, they've definitively lost on marriage equality, but they have won on abortion. So I want to get to that in a second, but let's focus on the Ohio piece of this. Ohio, as Paul said a moment ago, used to be a presidential bellwether. Not long ago, President Obama won it twice. In the last 10 years, it began to swing pretty hard to Republicans. So what was the matter with Ohio?
1: A few things, but just let me say the last time I ran for Congress in that long Ohio River district, I didn't have a Republican opponent. Think of that. Wow. And that district now is solidly red. When that happened in a relatively short period, number of years. But I want to challenge something you said, Matt. When you said that the Republicans have won the abortion debate, I think that is so far from the truth. They were over to use a a Supreme Court to take away a woman's right to choose something that this country had embraced for 50 years. But they've lost the argument. They've lost the argument. And we're seeing that in state after state where people have the ability to go to the ballot box and register a decision. The, The right to life folks are losing consistently. And this is my concern about that. The right wing needs a whipping boy. They need someone to target, to demonize, to gin up their base. And it hurts me in my soul. And and I'm not overstating that. It it agonizes me to know that they have chosen children, transgender children, to demonize in order to try to gin up their political support. And that is as evil as anything I can imagine. I've got a transgender nephew, wonderful guy. I'm proud of him, and and it offends me. I used to be a minister, and I respect the community of faith, but it offends me that so many people who are caught up in the evangelical Trump environment are willing to focus their ire, their anger, their hatred on transgender children or transgender adults, and they're going to lose this argument as well just as they've lost the national argument when it comes to choice. Most Americans believe in choice. And I think most Americans are fair-minded, decent people who are unwilling to allow the demonization of transgender children and adults. And so I am hopeful that these cultural issues are coming to backfire on, on the left. And I think that may mean that a state like Ohio is going to start reverberating or re- returning, that is the right word, to our roots and once again become a middle state in terms of political philosophy and voting and so on and so forth.
2: Does that suggest that Frank's argument had some merit, that these cultural arguments only work when Republicans safely feel like they're not going to prevail, at least in the courts. It only works if they're impossible to be victorious. As soon as they're victorious, in the sense of the Supreme Court on abortion, or they outright lose because the culture shifts beyond. When it came to marriage equality, they lose their political heft.
1: That's right, that they have used these cultural issues, social cultural issues, They've they've used the religious community. I came from the evangelical wing of the Christian church. I went to a college where I had to go to chapel three times a week, where we had prayer before every class. I went to theological seminary for three years in a very theologically conservative seminary. Now, that's not where my religious thought has evolved to, but I still appreciate that expression of the Christian faith. And it really bothers me that I think faith has been used as a tool to unhinge some of the most awful thoughts and feelings and behaviors in this country. And I'm hopeful, just as I hope that Ohio returns to a more moderate democratic position, I'm hopeful the church will at some point wake up and say, we can't allow the community of faith to be hijacked and used for religious purposes. But I see that happening.
0: Governor, let me ask you this. So Matt asked you about the, the Thomas Frank book and this idea that Democrats lost the heartland by moving left and that the Republicans were making hay by moving. And in the 20 years since, we've certainly seen this huge increase in a divided nation. We've had the Donald Trump era, which hopefully is coming to an end with the justice system. But I'm curious about what I hear from you is some optimism. And I'm curious about whether the issue one abortion referendum and similar results in places like Wisconsin, Ohio, Wisconsin, critical heartland kind of bellwethers for the country. What does that do to the whole equation in your view? The
1: last Senate race in Ohio, against J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan. Him, Tim was a fighter for the working middle-class folks as, as much as Sherrod Brown. I
0: right, sure, yeah, we were close.
1: Yeah, the dear friend of mine. But Ohio still hasn't evolved. The Republicans, with this issue one issue, I think have awakened a lot of Ohioans who have been sleepy for a long time and just weren't engaged. But what I saw with the engagement of different groups and people, individuals coming together to fight issue one, I think it is possible that coalition can give Sherrod Brown a victory this this November. It's going to be very tough. He's the only statewide Democrat in Ohio other than two Supreme Court justices. He's, as Sherrod's a fighter, He's he's been around, he knows how to campaign, and he knows how to talk to people. And the Republicans are lining up now against him. Two of his Potential opponents are very wealthy people, but I think that coalition that helped us defeat uh, issue one will be there this fall to put Sherrod over the winning line, and, and will enshrine within our constitution a woman's right to choose. And secondly, there's another issue going to be on the ballot this fall, and that's the legalization of marijuana. And I think that issue is going to bring out younger people in large numbers, maybe energize younger people to get involved in the political process to the degree that they haven't for maybe ever. So I I have some hope this fall for Ohio. And I think if we can pull off these wins in Ohio, it's going to, if it can happen in Ohio, Paul, it can happen in any place in this country, because as Donald Trump has been the, the king of the road here in Ohio for the last few years. But I don't think that's inevitable going forward.
2: Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Let's drill down just a little bit on that. We've had guests like former Ohio Democratic Party chair David Pepper on this show previously, and we've talked mechanics in Turkey. It's not that I want to get that far into the weeds, but I think people would love to know especially people in Wisconsin and Minnesota and Michigan and similar Midwest states. You've managed, if I understand things right, you've managed to turn things around in some blue collar areas like Northeast Ohio. You've managed to turn the tide that as you said, Trump had went rushing in a red direction. How have you done that? What are the lessons learned that can be applied in other places?
1: Well, I'm glad you've talked with David Pepper because he is the guru of Ohio politics. And he does dig down deeply into these processes. I think we've had some good candidates in Ohio. Some of them are farther to the left or maybe a little bit in the middle than others. Marcia Captor, for example, up in Northwest Ohio, a very tough, very tough area. She's managed to hang on. And, and my former employee, Greg Landsman, who worked for me when he was a college kid and worked for me when I was in Congress and worked for me when I was in the governor's office and is now a congressman from the Cincinnati area, having defeated an incumbent. There are some Glimmers of hope in Ohio. and i'm not I'm not unrealistic. I've suffered enough defeats in my own life to know that you can't always predict what's going to happen. But I do think that there is something live in Ohio now that wasn't alive in Ohio a few months ago. And I think it was the overreaching and the extreme positions of the Republican legislature that that have really turned people off. and they they're willing to stand up and fight back. And, but you've got to have good candidates. You've got to have resources and you've got to have the right message. Sherrod's got the right message. Tim had the right message, but it's just in politics, timing is just about everything. And it was just not quite the right time. But, but I'm not giving up on Ohio. And I don't think, I don't think we ought to give up on any of these formerly moderate states that have been overtaken by the Trump phenomena.
2: Paul, you know what we got to do? We got to have Congressman Landsman on the show because he took out Steve Shabbat. You remember Steve Shabbat? Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to use in front of a minister the kind of language I would like to use about mm-hmm. Steve Shabbat. Suffice it to say, Greg Landsman, in the words of our people, did a mitzvah. So let's invite him on the show. We should talk to him and talk about how he did it. That's, uh, that's good know, work for America.
0: What I'm thinking about, Governor, what you've said is that it sounds like it's possible for common sense and moderation, so to speak, to prevail in Ohio, and that maybe Rahm Emanuel and would, was always talking about how you got to find the right candidate for the district, and and he wasn't overly orthodox about choosing about moving left if the district required somebody of more moderate means. And I enjoyed that, especially when I ran in New Hampshire. At the time, I was, I guess, quite a moderate, quite a centrist, and in fact, on guns, specifically, I was, and I'll admit it, that we did everything we could to keep the NRA out of our race in New Hampshire, and the country was in a very different place at the time when I first ran in '04 and ran again successfully in '06 and '08. And my position on guns has evolved enormously since my time in Congress and when I was a candidate for the U.S. Senate. Now, you've gone through a similar journey in your career, and I'm curious about your journey and why you made that journey on such a volatile issue.
1: Yeah, I grew up in Appalachia, Ohio. We were hunters, and guns were just a part of our culture. I've spent late nights, early mornings out in the forest hunting, and so it was just natural for me to be a pro-gun person. And my understanding of the NRA was that it has evolved. That there was a time when the NRA was much less radical than it is now. It emphasized sportsmanship. And and I would go to these NRA banquets and politics really were never discussed. We ate and raffled off guns and so on and so forth. And just it was just a, it's just a nice event. It was just natural that I would take that position. I'm going to tell you something that is humiliating to me now, looking back on it. But Wayne LaPierre came to Southern Ohio and campaigned for me, held a fundraiser for me. And the pictures are there. I can't erase them, right? You can ask for forgiveness and you can repent, but you can't undo whatever wrong you may have done. It's done. And so anyway, I, I, I remained strongly supportive of gun rights. And I remember when the crime bill was voted on, that very controversial crime bill, which cost us basically the control of the U.S. House of Representatives. Tom Foley, the Speaker of the House, lost. Newt Gingrich became Speaker of the House. Your predecessor,
2: Dick Sweat, lost entirely because of that vote.
1: It it lost. It did so much. But I went to Jack Brooks. As the vote was taking place, because I was torn. For one thing, I used to work as a psychologist in a maximum security prison. And I was so offended by some of the provisions of that crime bill. It did lead to massive building of prisons. It encouraged states to adopt three strikes in your outlaws. And, out laws, and just there was so much bad about that crime bill. But anyway, I, and it took that crime bill t- took away the rights of prisoners to access Pell Grants. In in my maximum security prison in Lucasville, Ohio, where that awful riot took place, we had professors come in the evenings and teach college level courses. And that crime bill said no Pell Grants for prisoners. And so I was bothered by a lot of that. But during the vote, as it was taking place, I went to Jack Brooks. Jack Brooks was this older congressman from Texas, and, and he was an NRA supporter, as I was. And I said, Jack, what are you going to do? And he said, Ted, I'm the chairman of this committee. this is the president's bill. I've got to vote for it, but you do what you think is in your best interest. I voted against the crime bill. Jack Brooks voted for it. Tom Foley voted for it. We lost I don't know 35 or 40 House seats. Newgeach became the speaker and all that followed that. And so I'm not I'm not ashamed of the fact that I voted against the crime bill because take the gun issue out of it. I still think it was a destructive bill overall for the country. It led to some terrible things, and we're still experiencing the consequences of that. Yep. But you want, want to know how I evolved. I just came to see what the NRA was doing. No reasonableness at all. It, it just became a tool of the most radical right extreme elements in our country. It became an, an adjunct of the Republican Party, and it became increasingly Hostile to anything that would be proposed that could background checks. I think the NRA in its earlier days supported black background checks. Don't hold me to that, but I think they did. But they just became so radical that I want nothing to do with them. And consequently, when I ran for the Senate against Senator Portman, the NRA spent more money against me in that Senate race than any other Senate race in the country because they felt like I had, I was a turncoat. And in a way I was, because I grew, I was willing to you know, accept the fact that I had not been in the right place. And so I paid the price for it in terms of, but I was so damn proud to be able to, to stand against them in that race.
2: Governor, if it makes you feel any better, and you're on a show with Democrats, me as a staffer, Paul as a former member, who have walked this road. I worked... As a Democrat, as a Democratic staffer for two A plus rated members of Congress, Democrats who were rated A plus by the NRA. And one of my responsibilities as a chief of staff was to man- maintain relationships. Did, On behalf a, of, did I have
0: an A plus rating?
2: Man, you got it. You got at least an A. I can't remember if you got the plus. I'm sorry. <laughs> <A-plus laughs> I repent. <failure. laughs> I repent. If this, yes, I, I grant you Jewish absolution. If it makes you feel any better, one of my job responsibilities was to maintain relationships with the lobbyists of the nra and so i let one of them take me out to lunch at jack abramoff's restaurant oh. there's plenty of guilt to go around here
0: let me just say i recently read an article that kind of surprised me i served and had the deepest respect for john dingle he was yes. the lion i loved him and i, I loved could, john and we loved him in the article it pointed out his absolutely critical and central role in the unfortunate evolution of the nra yes and what it became and he realized too late what he had done it was it and so there's a great democrat one of the greatest democrats who had this unfortunate role on the gun issue and it's why so many people i think have come to see that this isn't. It's not a left or right issue. It's a. It's an issue of public safety. It's an issue that we all need to deal with, especially in light of what's happened since those days in in the when I served now a long time ago, and all the things that have happened. I think, Governor, that there are many folks like us whose positions have evolved.
1: And Matt, you mentioned the the NRA lobbyists. I found some of those folks to be just very solid, decent people. In fact. There were times when they would express to me their disdain for some of the positions of the organization they were, in fact, lobbying for. It's an issue that has, I guess, next to abortion or choice, has been perhaps the most polarizing issue in our country.
2: Absolutely. And I can say that while he was a felon, Jack Abramoff was able to maintain a restaurant that made some excellent sushi (laughs) on a more serious note. We call the show Beyond Politics because we don't want to just fetishize politics about everything. And we've alluded to the fact that you are an ordained minister. By the way, you and I have something in common. We have both officiated, I presume, at a Methodist wedding. True story. Yeah, i that that's a story for another time. 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years, about 12% of the U.S. population. It's the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history. It's one of the least talked about and most salient changes in American society that we've seen in the last century. It's a profound change in people's most personal inner experience. I wanna step aside from politics. Based on your profound experience in a number of veins, but also as a government leader and as an ordained minister, what do you make of this? Let's take a break, we'll be right back. What's the significance of it? Here again, I look at
1: my own self. I'm a very irregular churchgoer, but I I get on YouTube, and I play some of the great hymns of the church, and I I feel moved because it's it's more of a personal experience. The Methodist Church just basically split. The United Methodist Church still exists, but so many congregations have broken off and formed what they call the Global Methodist Church. And it was over the issue of gay marriage and having gay clergy and so forth. But there's so many issues, I think, that are that, that are confusing people about the central message of, for me, the Christian faith. The Jewish people have a different, so the, the Muslims, but the, the, there are so many interpreters of the Christian faith now in the media, and many of them I consider demagogues. It's as though they have hijacked the, the central teachings of the Christian faith. And I'll give you an example that I experienced running for Congress. These scorecards that, that the Christian Coalition used to put out. Uh, I, I, I knew when I was running for Congress this one year that this large, make a church was going to be doing that. And I went to church that Sunday there with my niece and her husband, who were faithful members of that church. And it was a wonderful service. And some woman stood up and asked for prayer for her son who was addicted, and another woman stood up and said she wanted to be baptized, and it was a wonderful... I didn't care much for the sermon, quite frankly, but at the end of the service, we were all standing singing, God be with you till we meet again, and my my niece's husband, who is the most mild-mannered, wonderful human being imaginable, he left the pew, he went up, stood in front of the congregation, the music stopped. He held up that scorecard, and he said, Ted, I want to apologize to you. This should never have been passed out in this church. Well, that sort of brought things to an end. As I was leaving the church, someone came up and yelled, you're scum. You're nothing but scum. And it it was just one of those experiences that that has stayed with me. I don't know. Was I wrong in going to that service? Was my nephew or my, my niece's husband wrong in going up and saying that? I don't know. But the church has become so identified with social, cultural issues that I think people want none of it, or they are confused about it. They don't know what message they're hearing through media is is grounded in historical tradition and faith as has been taught across the millennia. I don't know. It is a problem. It does exist. Described it accurately. But there is a need for it, I believe. Like I say, I one of my favorite hymns was Across the Crowded Ways of Life, and I listened to that, and I have those those feelings that I've experienced through my younger years, and I see the church as being hijacked, much of it, as being hijacked by a conservative, almost radical element.
0: To put a point on what you're saying, we've got this really nutso thing happening in America today where, and one of the most immoral, amoral, godless politicians in America history is overwhelming support from those who attend church frequently. In 2020, 59% of voters who frequently attend church voted for Trump. Eight in 10 white evangelical Protestant voters, 85% voted for Trump, and 81% of those who attend church less frequently voted for Trump. So how can Democrats reconnect with The religious Christians? Is it impossible because of our cultural positions? Is it a bridge too far? Is there a way? Do you see any bridge that we can cross or make that can reconnect Democrats with these folks?
1: Yeah, it's tough. And I think it can happen. I've seen it happen with certain efforts, certain ministers that are. I just had coffee with the minister here in Columbus, the minister of a large congregational church and he believes in social justice, and he preaches social justice, and he's got a very welcoming, inclusive church. And I would say he's a leader, the faith community in in Columbus, Ohio. But it seems to me that, and I don't want to blame the media, the media does what what media does. But so often that they brought in people like Franklin Graham when they want to talk about faith issues. Find some honorable rabbi or some minister that lives the faith and talks to the faith and, and and believes that we're all God's children, rather than let, I don't know, some of these people who you know who claim to be faith leaders just, I don't know, they seem to have a theology that is quite different than, than the one I think I learned about studying the Bible.
2: All right, Governor, let me get you out of here on this. And I don't mean this to be an elegiac question. While probably the majority of, of your political career is behind you. I don't want to say for certain you, yeah, you are is. a contemporary of the president of the United <laughs> States. Never say never, you could be back, but I want to take a, a, and give-
0: Don't our... say that to me, by the way.
2: Oh no, you're <laughs> done, man. But, but that's my choice, that's my choice. Paul, you don't want to run for anything again, do you? I'm I'm sorry. Mean, Paul, do you ever want to run for something? All right, we'll talk about this offline. I'm, I You might be hinting at something, I'm, I'm nervous for you now. So I just want to, I want to benefit from your wisdom. Of reflection here when you look back especially to your t- term as governor what's the thing that you accomplished that you're most proud of actually in all of your government service and by contrast with 2020 hindsight what's one thing that you wished you'd done differently
1: when i was governor my greatest regret and i've shared it i shared it with the governor dewine before he was after he was elected before he was sworn into office he wanted to get together to talk by the way, I never talked to my successor, John Casey, that, that, that those conversations never took place. But Governor DeWine is someone that I so strongly disagree with when it comes to these social cultural issues. But I think he's a decent human being. And after he was elected, before he was sworn in, he called me and said, can the two of us meet? No staff, just have breakfast. And, and he wanted to talk about two things. He wanted to talk about the death penalty, And he wanted to talk about the opioid crisis. And I said, Governor, I would love to keep you from having a regret that I have. I I would advise you to do what my friend Jay Inslee, who's the governor of Washington State, my roommate for 10 years in D.C., by the way. When Jay was elected governor, he just said, although Washington had a death penalty statute, Jay said, as long as I'm governor, there'll be no executions. And then he went to work and he got the legislature to make the change. And I said I said to Governor DeWine, I said, Mike, my greatest regret is that I didn't do when I became governor what Jay Inslee did. And I said, Mike, I know this is an issue for you because you're a strong Catholic, you're strong pro-life. And he said, but Ted, I voted for the death penalty when I was a state senator. And getting back to our earlier discussion about evolving, I said, Mike, I change, everyone changes. And I think if you were to come to a different conclusion here. You'd have a lot of support from both sides of the aisle. We've never had an execution since Mike DeWine's been governor. Mm. He finds some reason, some reason not to. And furthermore, I commuted a man 11 days before he was to be executed in Ohio. I now believe that man is innocent of the crime that put him on death row. And he came within 10 days of being killed by the state. He's still in prison. Uh, A lot of people A former Republican attorney general believes he's innocent of the original crime. I've come to the belief that he's innocent of the original crime, as has one of Ohio's Supreme Court justices. He's still in prison, but he's not dead. So the death penalty is my greatest regret. My my greatest accomplishments as governor? Hell, I was a great governor. I really was. No arguing from us. In in tough times, my first budget passed with one dissenting vote when Republicans controlled both the House and the Senate. We passed a significant renewable energy initiative that passed with only one dissenting vote that made Ohio really a leader when it came to the a portfolio standard for the re- renewable energy. We reformed education and the Education Committee, Commission of the States, said that our education reform was the boldest, most creative of any state in America. I'm really proud of what we accomplished. I advocated for $400 million to establish the beginnings of a passenger rail service connecting Cleveland, Columbus, Dayton, and Cincinnati, the most populated corridor in the nation without rail service. And we got the $400 million. Now, I'm going to tell you what happened to all those things. John Casey became governor. Within two weeks, he gave back the $400 million and it went to California. It wasn't his idea. He obliterated our education standards totally. He watered down to the point where they became meaningless Our renewable standards for electricity. So I am um, I was a good governor, but the fruits of my labor suffered at the hands of my predecessor, John Casey.
2: Let's just take this full circle. At the beginning, Paul noted that your current Wikipedia entry, which is great, it's great reading, there's a lot of great stuff on you, does note that you are the last governor of ohio from the democratic party as of 2023 but i think one of your ongoing legacies is you have imparted a lot of wisdom here hopefully that will help inform future generations of democratic governors who will be able to take the state back in the direction that you laid out and we really appreciate you doing that (laughs) with us here on the show and uh, who knows you may have just recruited paul to like want to run for politics again i think i think we just threw down the gauntlet and now he's tempted I hope, I hope that's one of your lasting legacies too.
1: Well, one of my legacies, as you mentioned him, is Greg Landsman, And I do hope you have him on your show. Greg Landsman is one of the most decent human beings on the face of God's earth. He's going to be a great Congress member. And uh, I am so proud. I feel like I brought him along and encouraged him. And, and, and uh, let me end on this. I wanted to see him sworn in. So I flew to Washington and I was in the chamber that day. When all you know, all hell broke loose, and they couldn't elect a speaker. Remember that. So I flew back home the next day, having caught COVID in D.C., and spent 20 days in the basement here trying to recover. But I wanted to be there to see Greg sworn in because he is such a wonderful human being.
2: All right. We are going to, we're putting this out. We're going to excerpt this for his use and his next campaign ad, and we will issue the invitation. (laughs) Governor Ted Strickland, thanks so much for being with us on Beyond.
1: Matt and Paul, thank you for giving me a pretty positive therapy session. I appreciate that. That's what we're here for.